Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Tomorrow is Labor Day, a holiday that is the result of the efforts of 19th century labor activists to recognize the contributions of workers to society. The U.S. Department of Labor's website will tell you that the very first Labor Day holiday was celebrated on Tuesday, September 5, 1882, here in New York City. In 1894, after many other states decided to adopt the holiday, President Grover Cleveland signed a law making it a national holiday. It makes sense this week to focus on labor in our current moment, but not just because of the holiday. This week, we had a historic storm and flooding in New York City as the remnants of Hurricane Ida passed over the Northeast. That evening, a Twitter user shared a video of a delivery worker in Brooklyn toting a bag of takeout through knee-deep water. The video went viral. It even attracted the attention of Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who represents the Bronx and Queens in Congress. Here's the sound of that delivery worker sloshing through with his customer's order. The next day, delivery workers told the city reporter, Claudia Irizarry Aponte, that the algorithms and services like Grubhub that assign workers may lock out a delivery worker if they object to the delivery distance or number of trips. And of course, there was no way to compute the situation many were faced with in the storm. Lazario Morales, a Grubhub worker in Astoria, told Aponte, this was the most horrible day ever in the job. He earned $277 total on Grubhub that day, including tips, after 14 hours of work in dangerous conditions. The clients are very inconsiderate, he said. As long as they get their meal, they don't care about us. Hildelin Cologne, Director of Policy and Strategic Partnerships for Los Deliveristas Unidas, a group that advocates for delivery workers, pointed out to CBS New York that the man whose treacherous delivery went viral on Twitter was only one of many braving the storm. She said, They were like, what option do I have? I have to feed my family. This week, I spoke to someone who studies gig workers and the systems and companies that manage them. Diana Enriquez is a PhD candidate in sociology at Princeton University. She studies labor, technology, informal economies, and law, particularly in the U.S. and Latin America. I caught up with Diana about two papers she helped author in recent months. One is Pre-Automation, Insourcing and Automating the Gig Economy, published in the journal Sociologica earlier this year, and another, Managing Algorithms, Partial Automation of Middle Management and Its Implications for the Gig Worker, published in the Proceedings of the Academy of Management this summer. Here's Diana. Um, so I'm Diana Enriquez. I'm a PhD candidate at Princeton in the Sociology Department. So Diana, can you tell me a little bit about uh, yourself, your co-authors who you write with, and how you came to this subject of labor and automation? Absolutely. Uh, so I worked for a while before I came back to school. And I was really interested in, I was working in media. I was actually the researcher at TED on their content team. 
And I was really interested in what was happening with freelance work in media. It made me really nervous. <laughs> so my dissertation is actually about how freelancers simultaneously operate as small businesses and contractors in this kind of weird employee business system, which of course meant in academia, there's a lot of focus right now on gig work and what that means for everybody else. So I'm writing about gig work, but I'm also writing about this quote unquote higher end part of the contractor market. And when I got to Princeton, I started working really closely with two of my co-authors, Janet Vertezzi and Adam Goldstein, who are both in the sociology department as well. They've had to read many drafts of my work, and they also became really interested in what was happening with gig work. They weren't quite writing about it as much before, but they both work on things that are tangentially related. So that was sort of our common interest. And then Larry Liu is another author, and he works specifically on automation and what's happening inside of large companies. And our fifth co-author on the pre-automation paper is someone who's starting a master's, um, and her name is Katie Miller. So I'd say that all of us are interested in what's happening with technology, and I came at it more from a, I'm really worried about our labor laws angle. So that's how I ended up on this particular project. So we're going to talk about a couple of papers today, and we'll start with the one on, on pre-automation, which you say focuses on platform coordination of labor on the one hand and expansion of automation techniques for said labor on the other. You call this a, a strategic configuration. What does that mean? And what does it mean for workers? Yeah. So what we saw happening is that we picked two companies who we think have really made a big effort to be so ubiquitous across the US that uh, you know, Uber itself is a verb. I will Uber to you. I think of that as a symbol that it's so ingrained in things that that's how we think about it. So, of course, it's competing with the taxi industry that existed, but it's also competing with people using their own cars and public transportation. Like, it really is just so ingrained and present in that way. And the other company that we ended up picking was Amazon, who we think of as being so convenient that they've really successfully made shoppers think twice about going to a local store. Because even though there's a wait time in the delivery, it's so seamless and painless and guaranteed in a in a system, especially in New York, where you may or may not find what you're looking for, they say, we will definitely get it to you. And that becomes so attractive, right? So we see them as two companies really building out this monopoly level presence everywhere because they're trying to optimize for consumer convenience and comfort. Meanwhile, to do that, they have to have all these contingent workers. So it's in their best interest for both companies, in particular Amazon for their delivery, but Uber with their drivers to really have a very large workforce to choose from, because then it accounts for tons of turnover. It accounts for any sort of issues that come up if someone's not a good fit. It also makes it easier for them to render these workers invisible, which is a really important part of their narrative about being tech companies and not transportation company for Uber or market for Amazon. All of this effort to make all these workers invisible and give them as little voice as possible really helps with this kind of future building that they both try to do. So we talk about the strategic configuration as they're saying, look, look, we're tech, look at all this money we're spending on tech. From our research side, we were paying a lot of attention to what kinds of talent they were trying to acquire. So we were looking at what departments do these people actively go into universities and poach everyone from, because that's happening a lot. And it tends to be engineering departments who are interested in automated technology, self-driving cars, delivery drones. So we see a lot of people talent-wise going that way. We were paying attention to what kind of patents they were filing and the technology there, which again, pretty closely linked to some of these universities. And then we were looking at the ways that they really try to expand their contingent workforce. 
Um, in particular, Uber is getting a lot of press because of the Prop 22 stuff in California, but their efforts are not just that particular bill that's drawing a lot of attention. They've been doing similar sort of campaigns with departments of labor and, and local laws in Massachusetts and a couple of other states to really try to protect this distanced status of these workers to make sure that we all know that they're not employees. They're these bizarre small businesses that really don't look like small businesses unless you dismantle <laughs> worker protection laws, right? So it's a multi-pronged sort of effort in the strategic configuration to make sure that they're maintaining their sort of monopoly presence with consumers, you pick them because they're the most convenient and consistent option. Then we also see them making sure that their workforce is giant and you know, supporting all of their needs. And then we see their efforts to really invest heavily in their research and development for what they see as the next step in maintaining their labor force. You get into essentially the kind of imagination of these companies, I feel like you're kind of, you know, teasing out um, not only what types of technologies they're investing in and talent they're hiring to carry forward that investment, but also, you know, some of their management practices. Can you give a couple of examples of the patent space and what, what Amazon is investing in that, you know, gives you some insight into its goals? Yeah. So I know um, two of my co-authors spent much more time combing all of the patents really carefully, especially Katie Miller is the expert on sort of what was happening there. And she did some really cool network models of who knew each other when they were filing these patents. But I'd say that some of the most striking ones tend to be on things like technology that you could use in a warehouse um, to do the automated kind of gathering of objects and putting them together and moving them around that a lot of workers do now. And I think that's gained a lot of press because there've been injuries and of course COVID has been really challenging in the warehouses. So some of the patents about moving heavy objects and sort of doing that type of work. Um, and then, of course, there's a whole bunch of self-driving car activity that Uber seems to be distancing itself from now, but for a long time was going kind of all in on in terms of who was trying to gather and whose patents it was trying to ensure were sort of filed in a way that was useful to them, right? You talk about some of the kind of key things that pre-automated workforces do. Uh, can you kind of just run through the, the set of bullets? With the pre-automated workforce, we know that they help scale the system. So when I mentioned that both of these companies rely heavily on consumer convenience, we see a lot of the slack being picked up by workers. So the reason they're so convenient and consistent is that there's a massive workforce that can be called at any time and will show up. And the wait time will be short or predictable, usually both. But that relies really heavily on having so many workers that you always have someone waiting around for a job, which both of these companies rely so heavily on. So that's happening. Then we also note that the workers take on a lot of the corporate risk. And this is true with a lot of contingent work in the United States. In this effort to kind of sell workers as small businesses who, you know, oh, it's so great, you control your schedule, be your own boss, whatever catchphrases we're selling right now. The cost of that is that it's even more risk put on the worker. And so Uber drivers are, of course, responsible for their cars and their car insurance. And I think people are pretty open about that. But there's a whole bunch of business risk that comes with that because they're like, oh, it's great. You'll get to pick when you work and you get to pick if it's the price that you want. But none of these workers get to set their own prices, which is sort of a feature of a small business. It's There are all these sort of weird parts that you're like, oh, clearly they're 100% dependent on this platform who dictates all of the terms while sort of gaslighting them and telling them that you get to set your own terms. So with the corporate risk, it's obviously like these actual machinery parts, but there's also the figuring out what a functional work schedule looks like, right? So a lot of the workers that I've talked to are like, 
you know, I was sold this idea of being able to have my own schedule, but in reality, I'm just sitting there refreshing specifically for Amazon's delivery program, refreshing and refreshing and refreshing the page to try to get enough shifts that I can make ends meet. And it's pretty grim. They're talking about how they're trying to be with their children at night or with their families. And realistically, they just have their phone there and they keep scrolling and keep refreshing. So it's two types of risk that way. And then with the trial, the train trial tasking, which is what we call the other bit, is that um, there are all kinds of data that these workers end up having to collect. And some of it's really useful for figuring out routing and figuring out what parts of Google Maps work or don't for this type of work. Workers are pretty aware that they're constantly under surveillance and they're collecting tons of data. But when I ask them about it, they're like, you know, realistically, at least I don't have a manager who's standing over me and breathing down my neck, which is unfortunately the alternative in a lot of low-wage work are these like hyper-surveillance, hyper-managerial, super-presence spaces where they're like, this is better because at least I'm alone. I'd rather deal with a machine bothering me because I can ignore it and work around it than a human who's yelling at me all the time. But it does mean that they're aware that the cost is I'm constantly under surveillance. I gather tons of data. And unfortunately, there's sort of this this built-in system, which if they do anything that's perceived as wrong by the machine, they get deactivated and there's no system for appeal. So they're like, I know that this is more extreme in some ways, but maybe it's still better. So that kind of leads us straight into the second paper on some level uh, quite well, which is uh, on what you call the automation of middle management. You know, so in this in this first paper we've we've talked about, you've set up this idea that of pre-automation, that the workers themselves are quite literally participating in the activity of possibly replacing themselves uh, on some level over some period of time. But then, you know, you kind of point to this idea that middle management's already gone through this uh, on some level, that the, the company's already automated that bit. And as you say, the workers, there's a tension in what they feel about this. You start off with that tension. Yeah. So, what we noticed with, it was sort of an accident that we found this middle management automation. And it was from me specifically in this first paper, talking to a lot of workers and saying, hey, how's this going? What kinds of data are they collecting on you? Do you notice them trying to automate things that you're doing? And mostly what came up in those conversations were places where they saw the platform try to automate something, but it wouldn't go very well. So then they could tell me really clearly their workarounds. I'm always really interested in the ways that these workers pick up the slack, essentially. But from those conversations, what I saw was these platforms have pretty effectively tried to automate the kind of coordination tasks that we associate with middle managers in production systems, but they don't do any of the sort of what we call entrepreneurial tasks. They just reject them entirely. So those fall to the workers. And if I was going to give you an example of what an entrepreneurial management task is, it's sort of being able to identify problems that come up and address them because it requires improvisation and tech is not good at that, right? Computers execute scripts really well when you tell them exactly what to do in case A, B, C, whatever you've been able to scope out. But if something goes wrong, which it frequently does, then it's left to the worker to sort of improvise and work around. So people were pretty clever about it. I'd say I heard some really amazing stories about, uh, especially because both Amazon and Uber are trying to be in rural places, which have very limited connectivity to the phones. People would tell me about all the things they did to record when they delivered things and leave a long paper trail of proving that they had done the job while the app was accusing them of not doing the job. Then I talked to a couple of workers who were telling me 
you know, one of the issues that middle management is typically responsible for is coordinating the workforce to make sure that there are enough workers in the location where they're needed and make sure that the shifts are filled in the ways that need to be. Uber kind of waves this away by saying, we increase the prices to encourage drivers to go on the road. But what I saw typically in urban areas was that people, drivers specifically, would kind of develop their own data collection system to say, typically I get a lot of rides in this location. I get a higher rate for it. Um, If it's raining, I know to be over here because there are more people who need trips to go to this other place. So they're doing this really kind of N of one (laughs) data collection and trying to guess and like have a market view while they're on the ground because the system doesn't help them do it. And so it's inefficient in that way while they're still being sold this idea that it's going to be super great and efficient because technology is so great. So those are a couple of the workarounds. I can tell you about other ones if you're interested, but those are some of my favorites. I want to focus on on this this quote, this idea of uh, the manager, as a manager, the mm-hmm. algorithm is highly negligent rather than domineering. This seemed to be something that uh, yeah. came through from the different workers you talked to. What What's it like to work for an algorithm? So... I think that our work does respond to a a lot of the sociological work that exists now says that algorithms are very domineering and there's no space for you to do anything except what they say. And I think with the things that they're scripted to do, that's absolutely true. So if you violate one of the quote unquote rules that the algorithm places, so let's say for Amazon drivers, what would come up a lot is consumer reviews are given an absolute premium and getting too many that say that you were a bad driver or whatever the complaint was means that you were removed from the platform and you have no recourse and you have no ability to overcome that review, even if the consumer is actually horrible, right? And there are lots of cases of this that came up in discussions I had with drivers, especially in the groups where they organize and talk about how do I deal with this person? Because I've heard bad things about them. So there is that narrative and it's true. But what we found more often is that the algorithm itself is supposed to be this middle manager who's like coordinating them. But in this kind of continued tech illusion of it's so great. You're a small business, be your own boss, choose when you're working. I think all of the things the algorithms don't do and the technology doesn't optimize for, or just doesn't care about are then sold as look at you being your own manager. It's so amazing, but it's unpaid work. All of that is unpaid work. So I gave the example of workers trying to figure out where should I be so that I get enough rides and make enough money. I would like to take advantage of the pricing system in the Uber app, but I'm trying to guess And it only tells me when I'm in the right location. So it's sort of this guessing game. And it means that sometimes you end up with a lot of drivers who are in one neighborhood, but you need them in the other one. And there's no manager kind of tracking that and saying, this is what the market looks like on Thursday nights, or this is what the market looks like on Sundays. You have these workers who are sometimes talking to like three of their friends trying to figure out, hey, have you had more luck over there or not? Should I try that? So there are other times where, and those are sort of interesting business ones, but it also came up in cases where the workers were in trouble and they had a really bad passenger or they had a package. I think one of the drivers was telling me about how he was given this package by a stranger and then asked to drive it two hours away. And he didn't know what was in the box and he couldn't reject it because he was like, it will count against me, but there's no way for me to record. I'm delivering a strange package. What am I going to do about it? Right? So he did it, but he felt really unsafe for two hours and there's no way to report that there's nothing for the driver to do there. So that might be a case where you have a system or a discussion about it when you have a real manager. But instead, these drivers are, again, taking on the risk and sort of figuring out 
is it worth me taking the penalty that I get for rejecting a trip to feel safe? And that shouldn't be a choice that people have to make. I see that as negligent management. It's probably a good time just to point out that for the second paper, you talked to uh, 41 quote unquote gig workers and conducted structured interviews with, with each of them. You know, where were these individuals? Who were they typically? Um, and what can you tell us about them? Absolutely. So it's interesting trying to recruit from these pools because they're so busy. And I think that something that's not discussed very often, in, especially in sociological research, is that it's really expensive to be poor, both in terms of you know monetary means, but in terms of time. So I think with this recruiting, I knew that it was going to take a lot of effort to get people on the phone. So I ran a couple of targeted ads in different apps and tech companies platforms, asking people for 20 minutes of their time. So they're very structured interviews. I was asking about how they work with the app, what their job is like. I try not to delve too much into personal information, but it frequently came out where people would say, trying to earn this much per day. Like I have a family, this is sort of what we need to almost make it. What we ended up getting is a pretty good sample across the U.S. So I have a whole bunch of folks from the South and, and the East and the West Coast and the Midwest. You know, I think I got a few people from each of the regions. I didn't get someone from each state because we didn't have enough people, but uh, I have a good mix of urban and rural drivers. And then in terms of gender, it ended up being kind of a 50-50 and a mix of ages too. I had I had a whole bunch of folks who retired either drivers with the taxi industry. I had some truckers, but then other people who were doing this as, I think another piece of the gig work industry that sometimes gets a little lost is you do have these folks who do it full-time, but there are a lot of other people who do it as like a part-time job to try to make, because they're either covering debt or they're students, or they just really need the extra income. So what frequently comes up in the Facebook group specifically of gig workers and drivers is that people are always like, what's your other job? And that's such a normal, basic part of their conversation that it's kind of assumed you can't survive on this. And you also can't survive on the other things that are accessible to you. So what is this kind of patchwork quilt of work that you have to create to be able to survive? So you identify three aspects of middle management via machine. Can you walk us through them? Yes. So we were thinking about what would make a successful middle manager doing production work and coordinating a workforce. So the three things we picked were one, that they were providing the necessary equipment that workers need to complete their jobs. The second was that they were scheduling work to make sure that labor was available in each of the places where there is some task that needs to be done by a worker. And finally, we said that management is responsible for providing feedback to improve worker performance. So then with each of those, what we did was we compared what a normal company would do when it had middle managers to what the workers described their work to be. So of course, with Uber and Lyft, the whole thing is that you provide your own car and car insurance. So they're not providing any equipment. Um, they provide some software that gets updates, but doesn't really handle the actual task, especially well, it just kind of connects drivers with passengers. Then with Amazon, it's interesting because they also have, um, with the Flex program specifically, which is what we were interested in, drivers are responsible for their cars and car insurance again. Uh, for a while, Amazon would lend these contingent workers scanning equipment. Um, and workers had to pay for damage on it. So someone that I talked to was telling me about this device called a rabbit and how she would scan packages in when she put them in her car and then she would scan them out when she delivered them. And it was the data recording system. 
but because these contractors were somehow responsible for that technology as a risk that they took on for Amazon, she was telling me about how in one week she dropped the device a couple of times and she would watch her paycheck be slashed in half. And they're not making enough money that, you know, having your weekly paycheck slashed in half was going to be okay. But it's it's very little money to Amazon. It was like $150. But to her, that's a third of her paycheck each time she drops it and is then responsible for the costs. So in addition to bearing the risk straight up, there was this kind of weird debt system. And it got more extreme when I was looking into how Amazon, or sorry, Uber and Lyft specifically now have a rental program for cars. So a couple of the drivers were telling me, you know, I can't afford to have a car, but now I can pay Uber to borrow one of their cars. So essentially I work two days for free to pay back this car to do this job for this platform. And then the other three days I might earn some income. And that seems questionable is a nice, more neutral word than I normally use for that. Um, but let's go with questionable. So that's the first one. With the second one, in terms of coordinating labor, I gave an example earlier of the workers developing their own spreadsheets and really trying to figure out how do I guess what the market looks like while I have zero information. So workers would tell me about how some areas were super crowded and it felt like there were way too many drivers and they didn't get enough work and they would love to know where else they could go. There were also drivers who would tell me about, especially if the driver was not white, they would tell me about places they really don't feel safe driving. And sometimes they'd figure that out while they were en route. So one person was telling me about how they ended up a couple times in one particular neighborhood picking up people who were high and had their car slashed. And there was, of course, some kind of racialized commentary added while it was happening and the driver felt really unsafe, but there was really no system for them to report it in any way that they felt better about. So they're like, I would like to know that I'm not going to be assigned this type of client again, like that if someone else complains, I'm not going to end up picking them up later, but there's no system for that. Um, and then in the third one with worker performance, what we learned was that the platforms send out these super abstracted emails that are like, be nice to your passengers, or here are some tips on how to make the experience good. But consistently, the drivers told me, I don't really read them because the feedback is so abstracted that it doesn't really help me. It's kind of basic parts of being a person who's decent. And then they would tell me if they did ever have a moment where the platform actually broke its automated scripts and its abstracted kind of HR approved statements. So you got an email from someone who's like, hey, here's what's going on. You knew that it was sort of a warning shot that you were close to being deactivated. And they would say they referred to them differently. They're like, we get feedback versus advice. And if I get an email that says advice in it, where they tell me something specific about a trip I just did or a delivery that I just did, then I know I'm in trouble. It's not really supportive. It's don't become noticeable to me again. So the minute you hear from a human, it, you know it's punitive. Yeah. If you are enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you are there, join our newsletter.
So that leads us to the four dysfunctional traits of algorithmic management that you lay out in the paper, absolutism, surveillance, conflict avoidance, and aggrandizement. Tell me a little bit about each of these. Sure. So I think the absolutism is covered really well in sociological literature. It's a lot about the example I've given where workers, once they get some complaints and they're they're deactivated, have no recourse, they can't talk to anyone. It's sort of like they're stonewalled and they're done. So there are lots of penalties that count against them and they never seem to go away. There's no forgive. There's just a scoreboard of times that you messed up that you can never undo. Then with the surveillance element, of course, their um, drivers are pretty aware that the apps are collecting their location data and there's a whole bunch of other stuff they have to put in. So they know that someone's always watching, but there's this sort of detachment from it because they still, again, sort of feel like this is a better alternative to the surveillance I had to deal with when I had a low-wage job in person. So I think that's important to note. The conflict avoidance and the aggrandizement are sort of newer things that we are hoping to contribute to this conversation. And this is getting into where I've described algorithmic management as kind of negligent. So I sometimes call the conflict avoidant passive aggression because, again, workers will file complaints. They'll note issues with the technology. They'll note issues with passengers. But there's sort of a we hear you uh uh-huh kind of response from the platform. And they frequently don't really feel like anybody's listening. It sort of feels like it goes into an inbox that nobody reads. So what was really interesting specifically with the conflict avoidance is I'm in a whole bunch of Facebook groups specifically for Amazon delivery people. And there's a whole ritual around sharing when they finally find somebody on the customer service line who will talk to them like a person rather than a robot talking to another robot through the scripts that they're allowed to say and how, you know, it's, it's just so scripted that anything off it becomes lost into space. When one of the drivers would find a customer service representative who would finally answer their questions and try to troubleshoot with them, they would very carefully share that person's direct phone number in the Facebook group and say, like, this person will answer your questions. And it became this precious resource um, that people tried to use really responsibly. And then inevitably, because there's so much turnover in customer service, too, because it's also a pretty miserable job there would be sort of this funeral of we lost that one precious resource. They're gone now. You're not going to be able to reach them at that number and sort of looking again for someone who will answer their questions. And because the platform really doesn't help them when they have issues, they form these Facebook groups where they crowdsource information and they crowdsource tips on dealing with difficult passengers, difficult delivery folks. They talk about what they think the market looks like. They really try to support each other because they don't get anything from the platform. And finally, with the aggrandizement, there are a whole bunch of cases where the app would do some kind of quote unquote improvement um, that was supposed to make the experience better for the consumer and the driver in theory. But most of the time, the drivers would tell me, yeah, it became another thing to work around. So one of the examples that someone gave me was that they knew the city they lived in so well that they had a pretty good mapping system for how they did the deliveries based on what traffic was like and where construction was happening and schools let out. All of these like very specific kind of environmental things that Google Maps doesn't deal with especially well. And she was telling me that Amazon tried to introduce this numbering system to packages where it put like a four digit code on the package that was supposed to be helpful for the drivers figuring out how to specifically arrange packages in their car and therefore like plan their driving routes. 
And she said it made it more difficult because it got rid of some of the information that used to exist that she relied on because it was based on real human things. And this four-digit number now assumed that she was a robot that knew a secret code, which she didn't know, and there wasn't any sort of onboarding for it in any way that was helpful. So she told me about how she ended up getting around it and sort of ignoring it. But in the app, it looks like a success because she was driving efficiently and doing all these things successfully, but that was based on her existing knowledge and not on this weird robot code that, yay, technology making us better at our jobs, right? So she would say like, yeah, they do this stuff and it gets in my way. Here's how I work around it. And that came up a lot. But we then say, oh, great. You know, the app's doing a good job. Uber is doing a good job. When in reality, that's a pretty specific tech case. But a lot of the time, as I've said, the workers just end up picking up the slack and optimizing and doing all the same improvisational work that a machine doesn't do very well. And instead the large invisible contingent workforce does a lot better. You call that positive deviance, is that right? Yeah, so it's interesting to think about these kind of gig workers as people who are given a script and a bunch of rules that they're supposed to follow, but then they're also told what the company's goal is. So these are things they're supposed to bear in mind. In theory, they should line up, but the workers gave lots of experiences and lots of stories about how they are frequently at odds. So they follow exactly the script that Uber gives them. It's going to be slower for the passenger. Is that a case where I break the rules and don't follow the Google map and do the more efficient route and the passenger might yell at me because they value the transparency of the app and they see me going quote unquote rogue, but it's going to get them there faster. So I'm meeting that goal or do I adhere exclusively to what Google map says and it's going to be worse for the passenger in terms of an experience and in terms of costs or whatever but I'm following the rules. So we frequently saw places where gig workers are trying to make that decision and either, you know, choose to be invisible to the platform and not have any repercussions or to make the experience overall better because they improvised to meet the end goal. You get onto the idea that there's a a growing distance between workers and employers and why that matters. The fact that these algorithmic management layers are essentially kind of a a black box. And you conclude with this notion that the tech companies aren't really innovative at all. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So I think, again, in this sort of future building, the companies spend a lot of time telling us what the future is going to look like. And that's in part because if they can get us to buy into what they want the future to be like, it makes it a lot harder for us to fight it if people i mean and what i mean by that is if people give up and are like yes this is the future of work we should dismantle all of our labor laws to make this easier for these companies to get the data they need and like test all the technology because we're going all in on the tech and we're going to assume that there are no workers involved anymore that's a lot of control for one group of people who (laughs) um, is again saying don't worry there aren't going to be workers here what we contest with that is that there will always always be workers there in the history of Silicon Valley, so many of these companies rely on a lot of people doing small tasks repeatedly and filling in the gaps and improvising. So a lot of our paper is, especially the pre-automation one, is about how this is a lot of marketing of a future that we don't think is necessarily going to come to pass. It's very useful for them if we all buy into it because it helps them dismantle the labor laws they need to keep being as profitable as they are. But we think from watching how much the workers improvise and all the different things that they actually do to make it work that yeah, there's an app. Uber has an app. It coordinates things and adds some transparency. I'm not sure that that's like a giant overhaul of 
all of our systems and changing cities in the way that their marketing teams really sell as a narrative, right? And Amazon similarly, I think, has been very successful in building this sort of monopoly scale business. I'm again, not sure that building, and it has a very successful search. I think it has a very successful sort of distribution network. I'm not sure that this is quite the degree of life-changing difference from shopping and delivery that they want you to focus on when they sell themselves as a tech company rather than a, than a store that's very convenient, right? And Uber also in its effort to say we're a tech company rather than a driving company, it's this separation to say we're something different and new. And when you kind of open up the box and you're like, who's actually doing the work and what is their work? What part has actually changed via the app or not? What I see instead are two companies that very successfully optimize for consumer convenience and not really something that has ultimately changed the way that transportation works or the way that shopping happens or how people think about it, right? It's just more convenient now. You make this argument that if we were to kind of, I guess, look at where the ingenuity sits in these companies, it's it's really with the workers that you know, you've got these kind of kludgy systems that, that the companies exert on their workforce, but the innovation to actually create the experience often relies on that deviance, essentially, or that the sociological citizen, as you as you call them, that's sort of like smoothing out the entire thing, but not really being paid for that. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I guess we could talk about the app in itself as an interesting coordination tool. I think that that is cool and has done some neat things. And there are some design things we've learned from it that are important. I think it's a much smaller scale of innovation and change than what the stories they market say about them. (laughs) If that makes sense. I think a lot of what the workers do every day to make sure that their jobs get done in a very small amount of time is, is really impressive and frequently overlooked. So yeah. <laughs> so you've made this some of your data available uh, publicly where people can take a look. Uh, where can people engage? We are going to be posting it on Princeton now is hosting an open data website. Um, so everything's under a Creative Commons license with attribution. And the goal with that is just to make our data accessible if you want to open if you want to open my my research black box here and see like what did they talk about? We, of course, are worried about privacy, so I'm removing stuff that is um, identifying or a little bit too specific about the person, um, such that someone would be able to find them. But I'm going to give everyone my discussion guide and most of the interviews. So if you want to see what workers actually say about what their work's like, how much they're earning, some of the challenges that come up with them at work, I think I think that's sort of an important part of what's happening in social science and we want to contribute to it. So that's why we decided to do it. And of course, all of this was cleared with the people I interviewed. It was part of their consent form. They said, we'd like to make the interviews available publicly after we remove information. So that's an important part of this that makes this possible where it might otherwise not be in everybody else's research. So what's next for you and your co-authors? What are you all going to work on next? So I'm going back to, I'm trying to write a book about high skill freelancers in the US and the tension of existing as a small business and an employee, uh, especially when you're considered kind of an expert in what you do. So I talk to journalists, I talk to engineers and designers. So I'm talking to all these people who are showing up in a team that already existed and they're expected to just jump in and deal with whatever social stuff is going on there. 
but they're also expected to execute something at a level that they know is good while selling, <laughs> while translating that expertise to a group of people who frequently don't totally understand what you do and want you to do something different. So I'm writing a lot about the negotiation price, that negotiation process, how you think about a contract, how you negotiate prices, and what it means to essentially float both in the labor market and in the goods and services market as a business, because I think that's kind of a terrible position to put people in. But some people thrive, and I'm interested in who's doing well and who's really struggling. Um, I know that Jennifer Tezzi is writing a whole bunch of interesting things about what's happening with NASA and the technology there and sort of how you think about, I think one of the really interesting questions that she spent some time answering is how do you design technology that's still relevant in 40 years because you sent it into outer space, right? What a challenging question. Um, and then of course, Adam's always working on sort of organizational stuff and what's happening with companies and management and the work issues that come up with that for labor. Um, and I think Larry's continuing with automation work, especially at Amazon. He's very interested in that and follows it really closely. So again, like we're all sort of tangentially related to each other, but for this part of our project, it worked out really nicely in this cool creative exercise for all of us. Diana, thank you for talking to me about this research. <laughs> thank you for inviting me. I'm glad we got to talk about it. That's it for this week's show. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our guests. And of course, thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.